the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. In the post-Vietnam era, Australian forces have been involved in numerous international peacekeeping missions through the United Nations and other agencies, and these include in the Sinai, Persian Gulf, Rwanda, Somalia, East Timor and the Solomon Islands, as well as many overseas humanitarian relief operations, while more recently they've also fought as part of a multilateral series of forces in Iraq and also Afghanistan. The Air Force has also played a major role in peacekeeping and humanitarian missions, including Bougainville, Cambodia, East Timor, Indonesia, Pakistan, Papua New Guinea, Rwanda, the Solomon Islands, Somalia, and also the Sudan, in which many hundreds of Air Force personnel have been involved. The Iraq War in 2003 saw the Australian Defence Force contribution, which consisted of 2,050 personnel, including 620 RAAF members. Well, today I'm talking to Wing Commander Darren Clare. Now, just a little bit of background for personnel at RAAF Base Williamtown. A low-flying F-35A Lightning is hardly a remarkable sight, but a low pass conducted on the 28th of August held great significance for Wing Commander Darren Clare. It was his last flight before handing over command of Number 3 Squadron. Having flown more than 350 hours in the F-35A, Darren was not only one of the first RAAF pilots, as you can hear one taking off right now, he was selected to transition to the fifth generation platform, but also selected as the commanding officer of three squadron for the first Australian squadron to receive the aircraft. What a magnificent sound that is. He states that this was one of the most exciting moments of his career. Darren. How are you? Very well, thanks for having me. Do you miss that sound? Uh, a little bit. It's only been a month, but uh, yeah, it's, um, yeah it's, a, it's a nice sound to have. Yeah. I mean, you did a low pass in an F-35A on the 25th of August. Is that going to st- How much of that is going to stay with you as a significant memory in your career with the RAAF? Oh, it's absolutely. I, I knew exactly what it was, and we'd, we'd done a run down the beach and got some photographs around Newcastle and stuff. Uh, which is you know is a good memento for the trip and and then coming you know coming through initial low pass over the top of the family uh, you know it's not very often that you get to go full burner over the base uh, in an F thirty five so <laughs> is uh, there we'll a speed take limit <laughs> um, well there is a speed limit it's called the speed of sound um, and um, yeah we yeah, try not to try not to boom the base yeah uh, but you know it, it, it is a special moment and certainly. You know, taxiing back in with uh, the squadron members there and family there. And yeah, stuff. it would have been wonderful. It's great. You said you took photographs as you flew over Newcastle, etc. Is that the you in the plane controlling a camera in the plane, or did you have a camera in your hand? Uh, no, no, it wasn't even us. It was, we actually uh, got a hawk to come up with a RAF photographer uh, and oh. take some photos. So uh, they're on some of the ones on the image gallery that you see there yeah. uh, as myself and Harps, the new CO. Um, so it was pretty good during the a, handover. Pretty good to be a wing commander, isn't it? That's right. <laughs> 
Um, 350 hours, that's that's a lot of hours. Where has that taken you? In, in that 350, what kinds of thing, events have been involved in the passage of time? Sure, a lot of that was over in Arizona. Um, so flying over uh, in the US doing my own training. Uh, and then I did uh, some instructor training over there. I am an instructor trained in Australia previously. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did an upgrade onto the F-35 with the United States Air Force. Uh, we were embedded within the 61st Fighter Squadron over there uh, just as part of their te- their team. That's an instructional F-35 squadron, yep. uh, training squadron. Uh, and we just taught the USAF students and we taught the Australian transition students. Um, and we were, you know, as far as the um, Australians in that squadron were, um, you know, we were flight commanders, we were weapons officers. I was, you know, I'd sit in for the CO occasionally. They trusted me to do that. Mm, um, so, you know, that was quite a, an amazing relationship. So, yeah, a lot of my flying was over there instructing uh, students there. Uh, I've done a couple of ferries, which uh, as much as those are hours in the logbook, it's a lot of staring at a lot of ocean <laughs> um, as far as the Pacific Ocean is concerned. Um, and then obviously flying in Australia and we've been doing a lot of the sort of what we uh, were initially calling sort of like the validation verification stuff. So making sure the jet works in the Australian environment, um, you know, dropping bombs, firing missiles, making sure the systems work. And then sure. you know, what we're really looking at uh, as we approach uh, IOC or uh, initial operating capability is uh, our ability to be interoperable, uh, which is a really a big word to say that we can play nice with all the other platforms. So the Super Hornets, the Growlers, the Classic Hornets even at the moment, uh, you know, the Wedgetail, the Tanker mm. uh, and, and the like and the ground-based air defence. And so that's been our focus. How does the Royal Australian Air Force in terms of its material compare not in numbers, but in, in quality, to the United States Air Force? Uh, well, you know, we're absolutely comparable as far as the, the capabilities that we have. So we're, the, you know, we're currently the only country in the world to have the Growler um, outside of the, the US Navy. Um, we're also the only country to have the Super Hornet uh, outside the US Navy at the moment. Um, so uh, to have a, um, you know, platforms as such as Super Hornet, Wedgetail, Growler, and now F-35, um, is very much capability-wise a um, you know we're we're uh, batting right up there with the uh, the best of the what the USAF has got. The advantage we have and what we're actually where we're ahead of them really at the moment um, is within that integration and interoperability. In that we're such a small force, we can very quickly I can call up one squadron or six squadron and say, hey, next week we'd like to do some of this. Are you guys available? Yep, sure, cool, let's go. Um, whereas for them, um, you know, they've got ships on on boats and uh, doing their doing the things that they do. Sure. So for their ability to go and do those sorts of uh, detailed level exercises uh, is a lot harder. So we're I reckon we're a little bit ahead of uh, where they are as far as us being able to do that interoperability between platforms. I was talking to a couple of other personnel with the RAAF. And being the kind of person I am, not involved in the RAAF, I always think of a fighter plane, it's involved in dogfights. I mean, remember the Spitfires and the Sabres in the Korean War, etc. But I was told these days a fighter pilot's job is not to be involved in a dogfight. What is the role of a fighter pilot in 2021? Well, it's um, you know, it's becoming quite expanded. We can still do that dogfighting piece, and that's you know one of the fun things to go and do. Um, but at the same time, you know, if you're $150 million aeroplane is wound up dogfighting, it's probably not being used to its um, you know, best advantage there. So you know, the advantage that the F- F-35 brings is the sensor suite as well, uh, as well as the, the weapons, so that we can um, see what's going on around us. 
Because of the stealth, we can be in places that other aeroplanes can't be, so we can be closer to threats. We can, you know, uh, identify some of the uh, the threats out there, mm. uh, and then get, and then you know what this you know sort of the fusion and fifth gen, if you want to call it, what we're really looking at doing is having a common sort of picture. So what the F thirty five seeing is what the wedge tail is seeing, and being able to pass that to other assets, and you know in the in the uh, you know in the future being able to say send that to an air warfare destroyer or to army people on the ground or whatever else, and so just. That's the you know that's the real meat and potatoes, if you will, of, of fifth gen. It's that having those networks, having that data in place, and having getting to people who need it at times. For so I may be the F thirty five finding the target, but I may not be the person engaging the target, if you will. So the interconnectability between the other forces within the ADF, Army and Navy, becomes very integral to the role of the RAAF. Absolutely, it's it's no longer fighters going to do fighter stuff and ships going to do ship stuff and army going to do army stuff. We are all in this together uh, and we need to be able to grip that up, you know, with the networks and with the, you know, because a lot of this stuff is, you know, highly classified, you've suddenly got, you know, a lot of uh, crypto and that going on, making sure. sure that the Boeing product can talk to the Lockheed product um, and that sort of thing. So that's you know, that's where a lot of our, our effort is going. And, and and also, you know, as far as exercising goes, making sure that the guys on the ground know what an F-35 can do. How important, just you mentioned the guys on the ground, air crew, maintenance, etc. How important, do, what role do they play and how important is that role in, in addition to the fighter pilot? Oh, it's more important. I mean, the fighter pilot just but he flies the thing around. They... Um, the maintenance crew, you know, in, in three squadron, we had about 160, 170 people uh, to keep those jets flying. Um, you know, and they do an amazing job at turning those aircraft, keeping them airborne every day. You know, we recently did uh, a lightning storm ex- exercise where we simulated we were deployed because we couldn't due to COVID. Um, but we moved, we actually moved stuff around the hangar. We took deployed stuff and put it in the hangar. Uh, we isolated people to say you're actually deployed so you can't talk to these other people during the day as far as solving problems you've got to actually do what you would do pick up the phone email whatever else yeah yeah um, but they are you know they are fundamental to the to the capability and you know certainly the the team that we've got here at Williamtown at the moment are you know at the bleeding edge and, and doing amazing things in and keeping the aircraft flying. Yeah. So you mentioned at the bleeding edge um, the notion of making the Australian RAAF combat ready pilots. How do you achieve that, and how important? So you know, for those that uh, sort of understand the CAT scheme, so we uh, were able to uh, award our first B category um, awards for F thirty five, which is basically a four ship combat lead. So a DCAT is a brand new pilot, a CCAT is a two ship lead, and then a uh, BCAT is a four-ship combat lead, um, and uh, so those those three guys uh, had previous experience on Classic Hornet. Um, us being able to put that together uh, in a short period of time, and then to run that uh, with uh, you know, flight activities or missions that you know involved Growlers, involved Super Hornets, involved Hawks as mm. Red Air, involved Learjets as Red Air, involved Classic Hornets. Uh, and getting them thinking about all the different role sets, so not just air to air, but all the air to surface roles, uh, et cetera, et cetera. There goes another one of your planes. That's it. <laughs> uh, just, uh, just stop and listen to that. I think that's a, couple, a pair of hawks, but that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> I've flown them as well. 
I, I tell you what, there, there's nothing quite like being able to do these interviews for our history of the RAAF, which of course is the centenary in uh, March of uh, 2021. To be able to do it at a current Australian RAAF Air Force Base is really quite, it's a privilege and it's its quite good. Now, Darren, you joined the RAAF, what, in 1994-ish? 94, January 94, yeah. Why did you choose the RAAF and not the Navy? Or Because you can fly in the Navy or not the Army. What was the Air Force chosen for? Uh, so I was a army brat. My dad was in the army for 23 years. I thought I didn't particularly want to join the army. Um, <laughs> and the air force would pay me to fly. And I, you know, always loved the fast jets. So I always, you know, loved the Hornets and uh, I'd wanted to fly those. And I figured that the air force would pay me to do it. So um, <laughs> did they also teach you to fly, or did you learn to fly before? I you- didn't actually. I, I, uh, I did a couple of hours in a Cessna that my parents paid for just to make sure that I enjoyed flying. Um, but other than that, I had no flying experience before I joined the air force. So all your flying really was taught by the RAAF. Absolutely. Yeah. I know I've read something in your comments about flying the last of the F-35s for you, but you also talk about you were sad to see the Hornets retiring. Why? Oh, you know, they, you know, they were the first aircraft, at, uh, first fighter aircraft that I flew. Um, I went uh, over to Iraq in them in 2003. They are an amazing aircraft. They've been updated, you know, to an amazing level. Our, our uh, Australian technicians have, you know, kept them going for a very long time. They're doing really well. Um, so it is, you know, it's sad to see that old aircraft sort of pass on. You know, the, the, the aircraft that I joined up and flew with, so the PC-9, the Mackie and the Classic Hornet, um, are all being retired now. So <laughs> I guess it's a good thing for the Air Force. Yeah, well, you're a um, bit too young to retire. Just that's right. <laughs> but, um, but no, it's, it, so it, it, it is sad to see the, the old ones move on. That said, um, you know, it's an opportunity and I know, you know all the excitement that comes with the new aeroplane mm. and that's, you know, that's an amazing thing as well. Darren, I've, since I've been doing these interviews, uh, it's become patently obvious to me as a and that centenary of Anzac ambassador that we know a lot about World War I, we know a lot about World War II and to some extent, not a lot, but to some extent Korea and of course Vietnam. But what I've become most conscious of is the RAAF's role in the Malaya emergency, in Ubon, in, in Thailand, where they went there to defend, in the confrontation, Malaya and Indonesia, and of course Vietnam. But then we jump to 2000 plus, and we look at the Middle East. Now, you've mentioned you were involved in Iraq. That was in 2003 with Operation Falconer. What was the RAAF's role in that particular operation? So we were um, part of the broader Operaki Freedom uh, stuff there. Our initial uh, missions were DCA, so defensive counter-air protecting aerial assets. Uh, but again, with the, the Hornets' ability to, to swing roll, um, our first uh, bombs that were dropped were actually from jets that were flying DCA but still carrying air-to-ground ordnance uh, and were able to transition into a sort of a close-air support role uh, or uh, to um, find um, some targets there. Uh, we then transitioned into some strike roles uh, as the um, as the campaign uh, sort of reduced and then uh, pretty much solely uh, close air support, so up supporting all of the, the ground forces as they, as they moved north mm. and up into Baghdad. Um, that was an amazing time um, to be part of, the, part of the squadron, part of 75 squadron. How long were you there? Uh, three months. Three months. Yeah. Um, let's jump to 2010 and I believe the Heron, I think, was uh, used was remotely piloted in the air. How did that work? So um, we had the, the Heron. Uh, yeah, I was in Afghanistan in Kandahar in 2011. 
Um, and the Heron we were utilising as a, an, an ISR asset, so an intelligence surveillance reconnaissance mm-hmm. asset. Uh, that, uh, that's a pretty big remote control aircraft. It's you know, got a 60-foot <laughs> wingspan, it weighs a tonne. Um, but the small team we had over there, we were flying that for about 21 hours a day, every day, um, and uh, up overhead sort of Tarrant and areas around there. So we were able to provide, uh, it had a, a targeting pod or forward-looking infrared pod in the front of it there. Right. Uh, and we were able to provide basically electro-optical um, you know, TV picture support, if you will, um, to commanders on the ground. We could send that using a, like a rover capability um, down to commanders on the ground that could then see what was happening and basically provide them a, a picture around the corner, if you will, uh, as well as doing uh, what they call sort of soak. So we'd, we'd spend hours looking at, you know, we've got a intelligence suggesting something's happening over here, go and send the heron, and it, we'd just go and look at it and, until we either saw something or we didn't. That leads to a silly question, I suppose, but if the role of the fighter, as you've already described, is now X, why can't we use radio-controlled fighters to target things 30 kilometres away without actually having a pilot on it? Why have we not reached that technology yet, or have we? Well, it's a good question. I mean, and that's what things like the Loyal Wingmen are looking at, uh, at being able to do. And so that said, you know, sitting in a little shipping container, staring at a screen, uh, watching a little aeroplane fly that apparently you're in control of, um, there is a level of situational awareness uh, that you get about being in the aircraft and seeing the stuff around you. Mm. Uh, and, um, you know, certainly I'm biased as a fighter pilot to say that I don't <laughs> want to be replaced by a robot. Um, but that's, you know, where we're going to. Do I, you know, will I be able to have the capability to have a, you know, a swarm of other aircraft around me that I can control and they can either be sensors or shooters and they can sure. go into the areas that are higher threat um, because, you know, whilst the aeroplane's very expensive, the people in it are as well. So you know, Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, well, let's go back to the Middle East, and I believe as a commander, you worked together with the United States of America and the Air Force. How did that work? So we were in the uh, so in Operation Okra in um, 2016, 17. Yep. So I was there in 2015. Where it started in 16. Was in 2014. Yeah. yeah, I was over, trying to remember when I was over there. So I was there in 16. Um, so I was what was we call the red card holder um, for the uh, Australians in the uh, in the air operations centre. So um, the traditional name is sort of like the target engagement authority. Mm-hmm. So any of the weapons that were being um, dropped during the Mosul camp or during Mosul when I was over there um, that, that was coming through myself and my team to provide authorization for the Australians to, to drop. And working with the United States in conjunction? Like hand in glove. So, you know, we'd be um, talking to uh, Americans um, in the strike cells. We had, we're all within the American headquarters and so, you know, sort of side by side with them uh, and, you know, all the other coalition partners uh, at the same time. We hear a lot about ANZUS and the relationship between the United States of America and Australia in so many different ways. When you're actually working with them, fighter to fighter, pilot to pilot, commander to commander, how close is that relationship? Is it like working with another Australian or is it different in some sort of way? No, it's like it is absolutely, you have our cultural differences, that's fine. Sure. Um, But, you know, being able to work side by side, and this is where things like our... um, you know, being over at the 61st Fighter Squadron, I guess the example I'll give you at the 61st uh, was that um, you know, the CO of the 61st uh, actually taught 
uh, the uh, new CEO of 3 Squadron, Matt Harper, he was the first F-22 um, pilot uh, over there. The colonel in charge of the 56th Fighter Wing and I flew in 2003 together. The deputy group commander uh, flew in 2003 with me over in Iraq. Um, you know, the uh, USAF, um, CSAF, so the uh, Chief of Staff of the Air Force, uh, was taught by um, Air Chief Marshal Binskin when he was a flight lieutenant on exchange in 1985 at Luke. And so, you know... Yeah, you make, <laughs> you've, you've proved the point. You've proved so those, the point. And that's what I said to the, the, you know, the graduating classes there. It's like, hey, you know, the Australians, we, we'd done this side by side for a long time and this is just in my career. You know, when we, when we go forward again, you know, this is... These are the, the relationships that are going to see us through. And it's not just having those good conversations, it's having the hard conversations yeah. as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. Let's go to the F-35A Lightning. How good a plane is it? Oh, it's fantastic. It's an amazing piece of kit. Why? Um, Give me so, some examples. Yeah, so it, it allows, it gives uh, the, the senses and the picture that you can see around you is almost, I won't say scary, when you think about, back to the old older days of flying around and just not knowing where anything is and yep. you know the the hornet that i started flying um it had a you know simple simple radar and didn't have any of sort of the iff interrogators or electronic warfare or anything um, but this uh the what the f-35 does and it's not just by itself it's as a as a team particularly as a force ship we're able to see the airspace around us know where everybody is know where each other are know what each other's doing and so you become more much more effective um in battle space management whereby we used to try and do this stuff all sort of in our head and by the radio and saying hey you know listening to where the enemy is you know hearing where each other are who's targeting whom have, are we actually targeting different people to make sure we're not targeting the same person mm. and missing someone uh, and so you're know, certainly back in sort of the 2000 time frame that was all done via um via the radio uh, and just in our heads and and in the jet itself you know i had a radar display i might have a even now, you know, a Link 16 display, which is different. I've got a radar warning receiver, uh, etc. Now, you know, all of that plus all of my EW is on just one screen, and so, and not only that, what's on my screen is exactly the same as what's on my wingman's screens as well. And so, when, and when I target something, he can see that, and I can see what he's targeting, and so we don't have to double up and, and that sort of thing. What about the helmet? Uh, a pilot would have come from a plane without the heads-up display in the helmet as opposed to the heads-up display wherever it happens to be. How difficult was that to get used to? I, it's not necessarily difficult. It's just a different scan because previously if I'm looking over the side and I can sort of see that, I can glance to see the head-up display here, I actually have to physically bring my head around to see the head-up display. Um, but, you know, it, it is actually quite similar to the, the Jehemix, the Joint Helmet Mounted Queuing System for the, for the Hornets have. Um, and so it's, you know, I don't see any major issues when I you know if you do have a helmet failure you can still fly the jet um, just fine it's just you, you have to you, it's like hang on where am I looking to to find that information sure sure what's that taking off uh, it's an F-35 you can probably hear it but boy a, you can also feel it that's a bit loud you can feel that one what was it that's a, it's a looks like a four ship of F-35s taking off Oh, yes. That's the uh, biggest engine ever put in a fighter just there. So, that was... I didn't hear what you... There. 
What was it? One more to go. So what was that? So they were all F-35s. So there's four F-35s. So That's yeah. a very significant noise. Yeah, so it's the biggest engine ever put in a fighter. Um, and so it's you know, rated to about 42,000 pounds of thrust in full afterburner, which is what they were doing to take So off. in a straight line, silly question from a layman, what's yeah. its top speed? Um, so it's on the deck. We can get uh, you know, well and truly past the speed of sound. It'll slip past that very quickly. Mark 2? Uh, Mach 1.6. Mach 1.6. Yeah, That's where fast. it's currently limited to. But, but, yeah. <laughs> you mean it can go faster? Probably, Probably. Yeah. <laughs> All right, okay. How has the F-35A changed the style of uh, deployment, of uh, engagement, of fighting? Um, it's on a couple of different levels. Uh, so the security aspects are quite unique. You know, so as a high cla highly classified platform, we need to um, protect it. Um, we have a responsibility to protect that stuff. Um, but we also, to, to do that, we need to take particular... You know, we take sh shipping containers away that we'll then secure with you know, security personnel and, yep. and the like. Um, as far as, uh, and again, it, it's more about going as a team. So rather than just deploying a squadron to do a squadron job, you know, we will be deploying with the other platforms you know, and controllers sure. and just understanding, uh, having a greater understanding of the, the joint nature. And so um, you know, moving forward, I think yeah, the Air Force has always sort of done a reasonable job and we, we, we get that right pretty well um, as far as being um, interoperable within Air Force. Mm -hmm. you know, we need to expand that out now across all of the ADF and how we, how we sell ourselves. Uh, for that so well. is that, would that suggest we're in the middle of a, of a significant transition from the past? Uh, look, I think so. And I think, you know, um, moving, moving forward or looking you know, from where we've been to being masters of our tactical sort of area, uh, we're looking now towards more how do, we, how do we integrate within to become a real fighting package. And it's not just about the one um, sensor or the one platform. It's utilising everything that we've got uh, to bring, you know, an effect, if whether that's, you know, as, as much as... Uh, John Quaife used to say, kill people and break their stuff, which is what we do, you know. Um, if we're asked, you know, if we're sending fighters, then, you know, something's gone wrong. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but at the end of the day, it's much broader than, you know, it's no longer just an Air Force problem to solve. You know, we've got to bring aspects of all of it in. And, and the Bograts in the squadron need to understand that they are part of that picture and it's no longer just about you and your mate going out to do BFM it's you know having an understanding about what the rest of the organisation does we'll just pause while another one flies over a former RAAF retired person from uh, the New South Wales RAF said fighter jets no longer, in fact the F-35A don't get involved in a dogfight true? Uh, absolutely not. Um, so we can, if we if we need to go and uh, dogfight and kill another aircraft, we'll go and do that. So and we, because of our stealth, we can certainly get in there very close before uh, before they even know we're there. I won't ask you a classified question and don't answer it if you can't. But you t keep talking about the stealth quality of the F-35.
There's nothing stealth about that one. I can hear it. But talking about the stealth quality of the, the airplane, does that mean it's not visible by to radar? Is that what you mean? Uh, no, it's not. It's, it's certainly not um, completely invisible. It's just got a reduced ability to be detected um, by other aircraft out there. Oh, so, other aircraft. So there's um, and. As you hear, it's certainly not stealthy in the uh, audible domain. <laughs> but another jet, another jet fighter from another from an enemy is not going to hear that, surely. No, that's right. Um, but as far as the, uh, it's sort of all about being able to break. You know, if we talk OODA loops or kill chains or whatever else, being able to deny the enemy the ability to target us, so they may know where we are from a, an AWACS or something else. Sure. It's not a. It's not a tight enough. Um, coordinate for them to be able to employ weapons against us. Um, the aircraft's optimised um, to be able to get in nice and closely, like so it's stealth or it's um, lo- you know, low visibility, if you will. Mm. Um, the to be, you know, if he may, he may know I'm there. Like the the, the um, AWACS may be telling him, hey, you know, you've got a F-35 or a fighter coming to get you, but he doesn't see us on his radar. Right. And so we but can you can him, see him. But we can see him. And so, um, you know, assuming the, um, you know, the, depending, on the, depending on the fight, but, you know, that's, that's how we kind of go. And then if he can't see us, that adds a level of, you know, he knows we're there, but he can't, doesn't, like he doesn't know where. Yeah, exactly. And so that's where we might, you know, be able to sneak up and, you know, the, the dogfighting skills still become... You're going to miss the F-35As, aren't you? Probably, yeah. You'd be <laughs> <laughs> you may not be able to answer this question either, but I've heard a lot about Plan Jericho. Are you able to tell me what that is or might be? Well, Plan Jericho was introduced um, by then Air Marshal um, Brown um, and as former Chief of Air Force. Uh, and the... The idea about Plan Jericho is being able to sort of introduce uh, introduce technology more quickly into the into the air force, uh, and also in an interoperable way, and sort of being able to prototype and, and get stuff out to um, the users uh, more quickly. It's still ongoing, uh, and uh, will continue. But it's you know, basically looking at you know, when we talk about a fifth generation air force, it's it's a it's a good name to kind of wrap things up, although, you know, what is fifth gen, you know, depending on who you ask. Mm. Um, for me, uh, what I think about fifth gen and Jericho fits into this is about having sort of the the information, the, the networks uh, and the relationships in place. And so you've got to have the information and things like the F-35 get the information. So we're able to bring those, using our sensors, bring all that, that information in. We've got to have the networks in place so at the appropriate classification levels to be able to get that information out to the people that need it. Mm. And then you've got to have the relationships in place. Um, and that's from, um, you know, whether it's my intelligence officers uh, or uh, other services, so Army, Navy, mm-hmm. uh, or other um, foreign services as well. You've got to have the relationships to know that those people need that piece of information through that network at the right time to do their job. Mm. Um, and that's the, ultimately that's the goal um, of... Of whether it's you know Jericho or Fifth Gen Air Force or where we want to be as a as an Air Force going forward, um, and how we you know that relationship piece is is really really important because I need to know the person who needs that bit of information and being able to get it to them to be able and it might be so that they can you know drop a bomb on something or shoot something or to you know might be a threat warning or something like that. So that's where being able the Jericho side of that is being able to bring technologies in and out of that 
test them, see if they work, and if they do, being able to bring them to into service very quickly, yeah. um, which Fant is what we haven't necessarily done in, as an Air Force. Yeah, in the past. fantastic. And also fascinating. Just a couple of last questions. You keep on talking about relationships. Um, I suppose World War Two and even in Korea, Army, Navy and Air Force were three separate organisations and to some extent worked separately to each other. How important in 2021 is the interrelationship between the three main services in Australia? I think it's, you know, if, we, if we're going to move forward as a, as a force, an Australian Defence Force, um, it is the most important thing. Like if we don't have those relationships in place, uh, that, you know, to understand really not only what um, the other uh, services can bring to the fight, but what, you know, what their limitations are as well. Mm. Um, so we're not asking them to do something that they can't do. Um, you know that, and for the, you know, for the operational level commanders to, like, be able to pick from a suite of things that they can do, and knowing that, hey, if they ask for this and this, that those two um, capabilities already know what each other can do. Sure. Um, and so it's very much, you know, for us to be able to punch above our weight like we've done in the past, uh, and as a small force of around fifty thousand people, um, if we don't do that properly um, then we're really selling ourselves short and we're just pushing forward these bespoke unique capabilities yep. that it's like okay that's that's interesting that it can do it but it's not really relevant to the broad, broader force so that's you know as far as you know, you know from what I've learned in my almost 27 years you know the, and it doesn't matter whether it's relationships with the techos my techos in the squadron um, because it's you know if they understand what I want them to do um, then they're probably going to have a little bit more uh, energy in doing it mm. rather than just going oh I heard this might be something that we need to do. So. Last question. Planes in the air, they need fuel. The F-35A, what's its, without, from fill up to run out, what's its distance? What can it travel? I can't Roughly. Remember, yeah, I can't remember the actual stats, but we can pretty much get from here, I think we can get from here to Tyndall just, uh, as far as in, in one hop, depending on what the, the winds are on the day. Okay, so you're going to need to refuel, uh, so and yeah, refueling is going to be done in the air. Yep. How is that done? How difficult it is? And does the pipe that runs into your plane damage your aircraft? So the uh, the KC-30 is our primary air-to-air -air refueling um, platform. Um, we've also done it with the KC-10s, the KC-135s and the like over in the US. Uh, different to the Hornets, the Super Hornets and the Growlers that use the hose and the, the drogue or the basket um, and the probes, so probe and drogue, um, we use a boom refueling, um, so whereby the, the tanker actually puts down a boom and they have a, uh, a air refueling officer or ARO that, that flies, physically flies yep. the boom. Um, we'll come up behind the aircraft, behind the, the KC-30, uh, and they'll uh, push the uh, the probe into the into the F-35. Fortunately, there's no um, major damage that's done. It's designed for that. The, the metals and the parts are all designed to to work all in that uh, in sync there. The there is you know some scratching. There is a plate like a slipway for the for the um, boom to uh, move into the jet. But that's that doesn't that's, matter. That's part of the plan and the way it's you know the, the maintainers check that each time after we've done it. Okay. Uh, there's also being a, Getting back to the stealth side, um, this is all done behind doors. And so we've got some doors that open up to 
uh, allow access to the uh, to the port to refuel the refueling port there. Uh, and once the refueling is complete, uh, we just close those doors up, and uh, you never know any different. I've been talking to Darren Clare, wing commander of the F-35A, recently retired from that particular role on the 28th of August. I've got to say, Darren, thank God that the defence of Australia is in hands of people like you, because we are the best of the best and the best in the world. So thank you for what you do, and well done. Thanks very much for having me. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua and Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.